Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. Welcome. Thank you all. Blessings for joining us this Kadosh Holy, Holy Sabbath. I want to thank you out there, our donors, our financial supporters, for your stewardship and your tithes. You make it all possible. Thank you so much. And in light of that, I do want to make an announcement. We are switching our giving over from PayPal to our integrated push pay. So if you have been giving, and thank you if you have, and supporting us through PayPal, we're asking you to migrate your commitments over to push pay. You can go to TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash donate and set up your push pay account to help keep us online broadcasting to you this Shabbat and hopefully prayerfully everyone thereafter. So thanks again for that. Also, we've only got two weeks until Shavuot, so please sign up. We have a few spaces left over, TorahToTheTribes.com forward slash connect, and you can register and come and visit us in Oregon for Shavuot, empowering filling of the Ruach HaKodesh when we can get together and celebrate the feasts together. So today I am blessed and excited to be able to share a teaching with you. This is coming from a paper that um, was put together and I'd like to spend the time today going through. This is an opportunity for all of us to learn more about the Malkit Zedek perspective. I want to train us I want to coach us and I want to mentor us in the sticking points, in the sticking points of understanding that often prevent people from coming into the fullness of the Malkitzedic message. So this is Torah, this is liberty, this is the Malkitzedic priesthood teaching. And to do that really succinctly, I pray that I'm able to be able to disseminate the information in this article and use it to edify, glorify, and build up the body of Messiah. So let's get ready. Now, you can actually find that the article is linked to us below, so you can actually read along, which is the way I would recommend, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, as we break down this article. Because this article that was written describes what I teach here at Torah to the Tribes and the Malkit Zedek message as... New and potentially dangerous. This is new and potentially dangerous. Now, this is not, before we start, this is not a criticism of the author. As quite honestly, I like his writing style. I've read several of his books in the past, and he's quite inspiring to me. I just want to look at this as an educational and teaching example because some people do get stuck on some synagogue of Satan, 
Judaic kind of mindsets that are hard to unlock and break free of, especially if you've been in the Messianic movement for some period of time. So I'm hoping that we can address the sticking points in the Malkitzedic and move through it in an inspiring way. Now, why does this author inspire me? He gives me hope. Why is that? Because in all of the articles that have been written about Torah to the tribes, the Malkitzedic message, all of the Facebook posts, the Twitter threads, all of the social media stuff, this author is the closest, the closest to stumbling over the truth. And stumble he does. <laughs> and stumble he does. We're going to get to see that. It's actually quite exciting. Because he outright states at some points and then picks up on his predetermined, predetermined mindset and thought process and carries along without seeing. So he actually states truth, but then doesn't even actually continue to go and explain it, but continues on in a predetermined mindset. It's quite remarkable. And that kind of, to set the whole premise, I mean, if we're going to be honest, have you ever fallen? Have you ever stumbled over something and then got up and continued to walk on, not really even taking into account what you stumbled over? You had a predetermined mindset and you just kept on trucking even though you may have stumbled over something that was right before you. Come on, let's be honest. We've all done that, right? I mean, last week, my son and I, Moshe, we went mountain biking. Okay, we went mountain biking and we parked in the parking lot. Now, bear in mind, I'd been to all of the local bike shops. I'd looked at all the maps online. I'd talked to all of the amateurs in the city about where the routes were, where the best mountain biking was. They drew me maps. I had digital maps. I mean, I had everything planned. And I get out of the car, and there's signage all around. I read all of the signage, and then off me and my son go in the wrong direction. I don't realize this till later three and a half miles up a logging road, a thousand feet in elevation, an hour of serious cardio, I'm drenched, and all of a sudden, it dawns on me, oh my goodness, I was supposed to go through the gate right on the lower level by the car. I wasn't even supposed to climb this big logging road. Why did I do it? Because I had this predetermined mindset that I was going to go out for this epic ride where I was going to be getting all this elevation. But the reality of it was, it was on ground level and it was through these gates and this actual mountain bike park area. So, but my predetermined mindset set me on a course, even when there were signposts, all I ignored it because my mindset was on something. I was to say, I made it somewhat burdensome for myself than it didn't need to be. I made it somewhat burdensome for myself and it didn't necessarily mean to be that. So when we go through this article, I think you're going to see the burden of the law, the Torah, that weighs so heavy. 
But really, Yahusha, the Malkitzedic priesthood, the signage is all around from Abraham to the prophets to Paul's writing in the New Testament. But sometimes it's so obvious that we want this burden, we want this epic religious ride, but in reality, the easy yoke, he says, it's right before you. If you would just take it, it's easy. So I don't want to make this any more complex, any more intricate than it really is. Because our author gives me hope because he stumbles over so much truth. But because of the preset ideas he has, he doesn't come to the knowledge of it. So let's take a look at this. And to begin with, I want to give you a modern day paraphrase that really captures the big picture of the heavy yoke of the law. And it comes to us from Galatians 2.12. Those who are being vexed and fearful of the synagogue of Satan, they walk in hypocrisy. I see that they are not straightforward about the gospel. If they, pretending to live like Jews, in reality they live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, then why do they compel others to live like Jews? Knowing a man is not justified by the law, that would be the book of the law, but by faith. For if they construct those things which have been torn down, they, they make themselves transgressors. Now, if you tie that in with an end time millennial third temple deception based upon a misreading of Ezekiel, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're really addressing. So now if you have the article printed down, then follow along. We're going to begin. The article's entitled Melchizedek and the Torah, Shema Yisrael. We're going to go paragraph one and page one. The author says this, quote, There is a new and potentially dangerous teaching about the Melchizedek priesthood, which sounds appealing, but when examined closely, it appears to be an attempt to separate the law, the Torah, from the covenant, Brit. This is our author's opening statement, and here is where we begin. Now, here's a little Torah fact for you that's often ignored. Law, think about it, Law can be liberated, hence liberty. It can be rescinded and it can be amended. Second Peter 2.19 While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, 
through the knowledge of the Master and Savior, Yahushua, the Messiah, they again are entangled therein and overcome. The latter end, what is it? The latter end, oh my goodness, it is worse for them than in the beginning. Leaving Christianity and then becoming entangled in Messianic Judaism, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. What do I mean? I've seen too many people be led into the denial of Yahushua and the uplifting of Moshe. And then I've seen too many people lambasting and having no love for their brethren in the church. Denying the master and moving toward Jewish traditions is worse than staying in a Christ-centered church and loving your brothers. So let's address the first thing that he says. This is a new teaching. Well, it ain't new. Exodus 24, verse 7, we find the Hebrew word sefer brit. Sefer brit. This means what? The book of the covenant. This is 3,400 years old. This is 1,400 years before the common era. The word does actually appear in the pages of the Torah. And Deuteronomy 28, verse 6, book of the law, Sefer Torah, again, 3,400 years old, 1,400 years before the common era. This ain't new. It may be new to you, but it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun, says King Solomon. In fact, in 60 of the common era, that's 2,000 years ago, this is what was written about the book of the covenant and the book of the law dichotomy. Ephesians 2.12, written in 60 of the common era. This ain't new. That at the time, ye were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. That's a dedicated book of the covenant term that applies to the children of Abraham, which Paul says that ye are the zirah, the seed of Abraham, Abraham. These covenants of promise, because they did not understand the covenants of promise, they were aliens, they were without Messiah, they had no hope, and they were without Yahuwah in the world, outcasts. So these salvation covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12, are not part of the book of the law. Yes, they're Torah, but they are covenant. They are covenant. They are not part of the book of the law in any Bible, Christian, Messianic, or in the Tanakh. Let's look at his second statement. He says that this teaching is potentially dangerous. I'll tell you what's potentially dangerous. Not this teaching. Acts chapter 15 tells us what's potentially dangerous. For it seemed good 
to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and to us to lay upon us no greater burden than these necessary things. Idolatry, the dietary requirements, sexual immorality, and come together on the Shabbats, which includes the feasts and festivals, and celebrate with Yahuwah, and there you will learn the whole instruction about the covenant. That's not dangerous. That is a light and easy Malkitzedic yoke. But what is dangerous is doing what was happening in the early days of the faith. Acts 15.10. Why? Why are you putting a heavy burden around the necks of believers? Are you trying? I mean, are you trying to make Elohim angry? We and our fathers, we weren't even able to carry the heavy burden of the book of the law, which was why the prophets came along and they always tried to get us to return back into a safe environment because we couldn't even carry the burden. So Yahushua gave us another way. He gave us the Malkitzedic priesthood. Now that is what is really dangerous, is the heavy burden of the law. And that's not lawlessness. It is a rightly dividing point. Yahushua and the Malkitzedic priesthood, and Yahushua being our Malkitzedic high priest, is not dangerous. That is the light and evil. As James says, it is the Torah of liberty. Galatians 2 verse 21 talks about dangerous things. For if righteousness comes by the book of the law, then Messiah's death was vanity. If you think that what Torah to the tribes is teaching is dangerous, adhering to the book of the law, that is what's dangerous. Because then you make Messiah's death vanity. Because if Yahushua, think about this, if Yahushua had kept Leviticus, Damage control law. What do I mean damage control law? They broke the covenant at the sin of the golden calf. Yahweh was going to commit genocide on the whole nation. But then he relented because Moshe interceded. And he said, you know what? Instead of you being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, you'll be a kingdom with a priest and it'll be after the order of Aaron in a Levitical hierarchy. So those were damage control laws. The book of the law was added for transgression later because of the golden calf breach. So if Yahushua had kept Levitical damage control law to correct, or atone for an actual covenant infraction or breach of some kind on his part, he would then be our example, wouldn't he? But he didn't do that. If we follow the book of the law, then Yahushua would no longer be way. You're saying there's another way, but there isn't. The only way is through the Malki Zedek high priest and what he ratified. And Yahushua did not ratify what came after the golden calf breach. But he did ratify the book of the covenant. And you'll go, well, where was he? Exodus chapter 24, 11, the elders went up, 70 of them, and they had a covenant confirming meal with the 
anthropomorphic Yahweh who eats, has feet, hands. That, of course, is the manifestation of his son, the Basar, the word of Yahweh that became flesh. So this is an amazing thing as we delve into this paper. Now, the third point our author says is this. The danger is separating the law from the covenant. Well, we've got two distinct and disparate Hebrew words here. We've got sefer brit, which means you've got what? Sefer, book, brit, covenant. Sefer brit, book of the covenant, which was, of course, proposed, accepted, blood ratified with a covenant confirmed meal talks about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 but then later after the golden calf breach and it's quite a lot later you have in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 6 you have the Sefer Torah book of the law this is of course Deuteronomy 28 6 there was no proposal there was no acceptance. There is no blood ratification and there is no covenant confirming meal. You cannot try to connect these two because they are disparate. They are totally separate. They're separate linguistically. They're separate textually. They are unconnected and disparate words, not only in the Masoretic text, but in the Septuagint and in the New Testament, and Paul clarifies that to us in Galatians, calling it by name, Galatians 3.10, Sefer Torah, Book of the Law. So to try and make this a synonymous relationship when they are clearly disparate is not doing justice to the text. His fourth statement that he says in the opening paragraph is that he's examined the Malkitzedic teaching closely, examined closely. Page one, paragraph two, this is what he writes, quote, when reviewing some of the teachings that promote this new doctrine, we see an example of what one might call eisegesis. Eisegesis means you're inserting your own ideas into the text. Now here, Here's the straw man. Here's the straw man. Our author sets up the idea of eisegesis. And we all know that eisegesis is bad. So he sets up the idea of eisegesis and then blows it over. That's called straw man. This is what he does. He sets up the idea of eisegesis. We all know it's wrong. So then it's easy to blow over. But here's what's funny. He then gives us his own eisegesis. He gives us his own narrative layered upon the go-to messianic sheep verse of Matthew 5.17 that we've all overused and beaten people up with. Of course, do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. So instead, I'm going to actually give you three textual witnesses with none of my commentary and then you make your own exegesis you extract from the text and you decide number one we'll use exegesis 
Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 36. Take this book of the law, Sefer Torah, and put it in the side of the ark of the, what's it called? The ark of the covenant of Yahweh, your Elohim, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Number two, Hebrews 7 verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also of the Torah. Number three, Galatians 3.10. For as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in everything which is written in the book of the law to do them. Now, surely these three points bear some consideration before we get up, dust ourselves off, and continue going along with our predetermined mindset. Just do your own exegesis on those three texts. They say what they say without my commentary. So let's continue on with the article of our author. Page 1, paragraph 3, he says thus, quote, The major problem that I see with this teaching is the notion that Israel was given a special book of the law within the Abrahamic covenant, book of the covenant, that would only last until the Messiah came. Once the Messiah came, as Malkitzedic priest, notice he, Yahushua was never a Malkitzedic priest. Those are my comments. Was he? Was Yahushua a Malkitzedic priest? No way. He was a Malkitzedic high priest. It's a big distinction, very big distinction. You and I, we're Malkitzedic priests. Anyway, Sidetrack, let me continue on with what he says. Quote, he allegedly freed and separate, separated those in his priestly order from the Torah, and now they are strictly priests of the covenant. Now, here's the tell. I love this. Here's the tell. Our author hasn't done what he said he would do in paragraph one. He hasn't actually examined the polemic closely at all. In fact, he doesn't understand the book of the covenant, book of the law polemic to begin with. This is a huge false premise and a false premise will always lead you to a false conclusion. Look what he states, quote, the notion that Israel was given a special book of the law within the Abrahamic covenant, book of the covenant. This is absolutely wrong. The notion of Israel was, the, excuse me, the nation of Israel was not given the book of the law within the Abrahamic book of the covenant. This is a huge, massive failure to understand even the most basic inception of the Book of the Covenant, which happened 
at Exodus 19.4 to Exodus 24.11. So a false premise, of course, is going to draw a false conclusion. The book of the covenant is mentioned in Exodus 24 verse 7. The culmination of the Genesis 15 verse 3, Exodus 12 verse 40, 400 and 430 year prophecy. This is the culmination point of it. 400 years since the birth of Isaac, the promised son, and 430 years since Abraham met the Melchizedek and was blessed. And then we come 430 years later from that meeting with Melchizedek and you have the blood ratification of the Book of the Covenant. Boom! If you muddle this up, you're going to muddle everything up. And our author does this. To jumble up the earth-shattering ratification point of the Book of the Covenant it doesn't leave me with much confidence in our author's comprehension of our area of study. I'm just being honest. Okay, but this isn't against the author. This is just so many people wade into something before taking the actual time to study to show yourselves approved. So we'll continue on. Now, if you've got this false premise, then of course, the train's going to appear to go off the theological tracks, isn't it? And it looks like you've all gone headlong off the tracks too. And this whole ministry's gone headlong off the tracks. It appears because the premise is flawed. Therefore, you're actually on the wrong tracks and you think everybody else is on the wrong tracks too. It's a catastrophe because of a false premise, which of course, page one, paragraph three, False premise right there. So let's continue on because this gets more and more interesting. This really is a massive muddle. Page one, paragraph four, our author states this. This is how the teaching has been described to me, he says. And if this is correct, then the teaching specifically contradicts the words of the Messiah. Now, this makes me very uncomfortable. Page one, paragraph four, quote. This is what he says, because I want you to really comprehend this. Quote, this is how the teaching has been described to me. And if that is correct. So our author sheepishly admits that someone else has described this teaching to him. He hasn't actually studied it out himself and he's written this article somebody else has been telling him something who knows what who knows if they understood it who knows if they've studied it somebody else has told him some second third fourth hand information he hasn't actually studied it out himself he's written an article and this can be confirmed by his massive muddle in paragraph three of page one which I've already touched. And he hopes, but he's not sure if he understands it properly. He doesn't. He doesn't. But later, later on, as we go through the article, we'll see him fall over the truth again and again. And it's, it's really quite encouraging to me, because this guy, he's a smart cat. 
He really is. He's just veiled right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth, the, ze- the same veil is untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Yahusha. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe this guy's an attorney. So he's a smart cat. He's just veiled right now in the reading of the Old Testament because he's most probably spent 20 years, if I'm correct, in the Judaic Messianic movement with a predetermined synagogue of Satan mindset. So this is not on the front of the author. I've got several of his books from back in the day on my bookshelf, and I thoroughly enjoy reading them. So then he quotes, of course, the messianic sheep verse, Matthew 5.17, which we've all beaten up church flock with, haven't we? Let's be honest. We all have back in the day. Matthew 5.17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Well, would that include Genesis chapter 49 verse 10? What is Genesis 49 verse 10? It's the prophecy of a Torah clause that is overlooked by Judaism because Judaism denies the Messiah, Yahushua. They deny that Shiloh has come. That when Shiloh comes, there's going to be a clause that Yahuwah has built into his Torah and it's called the until change clause. And once that is invoked to deny it, Put you in a very dangerous possession. So Matthew 5.17 must include the Genesis 49.10 until clause. The until. What does until mean? I'm going to continue teaching until it's dinner time. Meaning once it's dinner time, something is going to change. The until clause is built into the Torah and it is all surrounded by when the Messiah comes and ratifies the new covenant. Then the reading and interpretation and application of Torah has to change. It has to because the until clause has been invoked. To deny that is to deny the redemptive work of Messiah, that's dangerous. That's where the synagogue of Satan misses the boat. They miss the Genesis 49.10 until clause. It's Torah. It's the most kadosh holy part of Torah because it speaks of Messiah and his redemptive work in the prophetic future. Messiah is the prophecy Shiloh Messiah comes. Prophecy also has to be fulfilled before heaven and earth pass away, which includes the change that it prophesied. Hebrews 11 verse 39 tells us that there was going to be a change. Hebrews 11:39 tells us that when Messiah came, because all those that went before, they could not obtain that 
what he brought in through the Genesis 49.10, Hebrews 7.11 and 12, change of law. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, they receive not the promise. What promise? The Ephesians 2.12, covenants of promise. The Ephesians 2.12, covenants of promise. That at that time ye were without Yahushua, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers for the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without Yahuwah in the world. So this is of most importance. If we read on in Ephesians, in the 13th verse, this very profound statement is mentioned. But now... In Messiah Yahushua, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Yahushua. So the blood of Yahushua, the coming of Shiloh, actually changes something. Can we agree to that? But according to Genesis 49.10, it is an until change of Torah, Hebrews 7.11.12. There's a change that must come. He breaks down the middle wall of partition between us. Having what? Abolished the enmity clause. What's an enmity clause? An enmity clause is Yahweh was going to do something, say like destroy a nation, but Moses intercedes. Yahweh relents on destroying them. He invokes an enmity clause, the book of the law, and then something happens. What? having abolished in his flesh, when Yahushua dies, he abolishes in his flesh all of the rebellion of sin that went beforehand, even, yes, even this, the law of commandments, the Torah of commandments contained in covenant. Is that what it says? No, it does not. The Torah of commandments contained in ordinances. There's the distinction. When Yahushua died, he abolished the book of the law enmity clause. Does that mean Yahweh's word is abolished? No. Heaven forbid. But the enmity clause and the book of the law and the Levitical ordinances have been transformed changed due to the inception of Shiloh. This is huge and this is the sticking point with so many people because of course thousands of years of Judaism would not touch this with a 10-foot barge pole and Messianic Judaism has inherited that theological mindset like me on the mountain bike trail. You can have signs all around you. But if you've got a predetermined mindset of what Torah is, you can go trekking off in the wrong direction when there are signs of the faith, it's called the New Testament, all around you because of that predetermined mindset. This is a law of commandments contained in ordinances as opposed to law of commandments contained in covenant. This is an undeniable law division. Is it not? This our author just cannot see yet because I believe he's veiled in the reading of the Torah as many 
in the messianic movement are. And I know. I was amongst them in the thick of it for over a decade. I understand the mindset. I had that mindset until I was liberated by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to he who has the Torah and the testimony. That's the truth that we follow. Hebrews 7 verse 16. We're not supposed to go after the law of the carnal commandment, but after the power of the endless life. Don't chase after the Torah. Chase after him who has the endless life and he'll show you what Torah really is. It's Malkitzedek. It's the law of liberty that sets you free, not unto lawlessness, but unto a life of power and liberty indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because we do not want to go after carnal commandments and, excuse me, carnal ordinances that were imposed upon them until the time of Reformation, Genesis 49.10. This is something that we have to understand. It's called law division, law division, law division. Does that make sense? Second Timothy 2 verse 15, another amazing verse, which you do your own exegesis, extract information from the text, study to show thyself approved unto Yahuwah, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A law division. You can't expect to show yourself approved, page 1, paragraph 4, by the word being described to me if that is correct approach, can you? That's not right. The word of truth is identified in Psalm 119, verse 142. It's defined as Torah. The Torah must be divided for you to be in the truth. The Torah must be rightly divided once the until clause is initiated. Otherwise, you're not keeping Torah at all. You're not. You have a form of godliness, yet you are denying its power if you're not in the Malkitzedic. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. But you've got to rightly divide it, otherwise you're going to be in error. So this, to me, I really enjoyed reading this. I hope you guys have had the opportunity online to track along with me and maybe read it this Shabbat. So let's go down to page two. Flip over to page two, paragraph two. Our author says this, quote, Now keep in mind that Hebrew reads from right to left so we can see the Aleph Toph. Now at this point in the article, our author tickles our ears with an amazing, and it was amazing, still is amazing, the amazing revelation of the Aleph Toph. Yahushua isn't that Alpha and the Omega. This is Hebrew. He's the Aleph Top. But this has been so overdone in the Messianic circuit from Jim Staley to Monty Judah to Rico Cortez to Michael Rood. Everybody's done this. We've all heard it before. This is just a tickling of the ears. It doesn't add or distract from the book of the law 
book of the covenant polemic. It shouldn't even be in this article. This is just used to kind of drag you in. Okay. This is the hook. This is the hook. It's got nothing to do with the book of the law or book of the covenant polemic. Doesn't add to it. It doesn't take away. It's just a tactic. It's been used for decades. I was a part of it. But this is a big tactic to try and draw people in. Oh, the tickling of the ears, the Olive Tav teaching. You know, it's not necessary to be in an article where you're truly trying to delve into the Malkitzedic polemic with the book of the law and the book of the covenant. So let's go down now into page two and paragraph six. This is the infamous synonym stumble. The synonym stumble. It's all synonymous. Everything's synonymous. And he goes on to state this. Quote, In fact, the scriptures actually make reference to certain terms of the covenant, curses being written within the book of the law. Deuteronomy 29 verse 21. So the covenant is found within the Torah, these are not separate books or scrolls. That's what the author says. So here, our author is mixing covenants and can't actually distinguish between a Malkitzedic covenant, which is, has a proposal, acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant confirming meal, and all other various covenants in scriptures. And there's a slew of them, right? There's salt covenants, shoe covenants, but only the Malkitzedic covenants have those four determining, identifying factors that can always be linked back to the fifth. So you can't lump covenants. And if you want a great teaching that I really enjoyed years ago doing, it's called Clearing Up Covenant Confusion in 10 Points. That's really helped a lot of people that have come into the truth of the Malkitzedic, and that's available on our YouTube channel. There are no curses, plural, in the Book of the Covenant. All of the curses are found in the Book of the Law. There's only one limited family curse in the book of the covenant, and that's if you dishonor your parents. But there are no other curses. So to say the curses, there aren't any curses in the book of the covenant. There's only one limited family curse. So he proves a distinction right here. His very words. The big stumbling block that many fall over is that, yes, the book of the covenant is Torah, and yes, the book of the law is Torah also. But the book of the covenant is blood-ratified Malkitzedic. It is proposed, is it, it's accepted, it's blood-ratified, and it has a covenant-confirming meal. Whereas the book of the law, which is also Torah, it was imposed... It was not agreed to. It was not blood ratified. It has no covenant confirming meal. They are disparate. They are not the same. They have no synonymous qualifiers in covenant whatsoever. One is law contained in covenant. Torah contained in covenant. The book of the covenant. The other is Torah 
contained in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15. So this is a clear distinction and a sticking point, a real sticking point to the synagogue of Satan mindset that is so hard to overcome. So now let's continue up onto page three. Is everyone doing okay? It's a little bit to trek through, but it's a Shabbat. It's enjoyable. Spend a little time. Let's go to page three of the article. Let's go down to paragraph three, where our author says this, quote, It is interesting to note that he tithed before the Torah was given at Sinai. What? This is the tell. I told you this guy is a clever cat. All right? He's so clever, he doesn't even know it yet. This guy, when the veil is lifted, he's going to be a powerhouse for the Malkitzedic covenant message. And if he's watching, he does, he's like, no, I'm not. No, no, brother, I'm, I know that the Father is working because you made the article. It vexed you somehow that you had to make an article. So the Father works in mysterious ways, and Yahweh's word is truth, and every man is a liar. But this is the tell. I love it. Let me just restate that. This is what he says. Did you catch it? I mean, I was just I was chuckling in my armchair. It is interesting to note that he tithed before the Torah was given at Sinai. This is the tell. The author, in his own words, admits what he generalizes as the Torah was given at Sinai. He acknowledges, listen, he acknowledges that something was given at Sinai that wasn't before. Something was given at Sinai that wasn't before. But hang on a minute. Abraham walked in Yahweh's Torah, Genesis chapter 26, verse 5. So it can't be generalized Torah that was given. It must be specific book of the covenant Torah that was ratified, Exodus 24, verse 7. He admits a law division right here. In his own words, he literally writes out that he acknowledges there is a law division between something that existed when Abraham was and then something that was given at where? Sinai. And he goes on to say this. This is just so inspiring to me. Quote, it was a practice repeated by his grandson Jacob. Genesis 28, verse 22. In fact, we know that Abraham obeyed the Torah within the covenant as recounted to Isaac. Wow! He falls over a profound truth here. A profound truth. He even states it in his own words. Abraham, listen, obeyed the Torah within the covenant. He's got it! He's got it! but he doesn't realize it. He's written it out. Yes, yes, you've got it. You can have Torah within covenant. That would be book of the covenant 
And thus, if you can have Torah within covenant, you can have Torah without covenant. That would be book of the law. You've got a law division. He states it. It's there. The signage is all around. But you know what? Sometimes, if you're like me, you just want to put a heavy burden on yourself and go head up a logging road and a thousand feet because you know what? That's just too obvious. I mean, I can write it out in an article as a rebuttal against Torah to the tribes. I'll even admit, but it's just too obvious. I can't see it. We've all... The veil can only be lifted, not by me, not by beating up somebody, but by prayer, intercession, and Yahuwah's perfect timing. Yahuwah. It's amazing. It's truly, truly amazing. Yes, you can have Torah within covenant, book of the covenant, and thus Torah without covenant, outside of covenant, which would be book of the law. Both are Torah. The profundity of it. But one is Malkizedek, and it is agreed to, blood ratified. The other was imposed, not agreed to, not ratified out of covenant. This is amazing. Let's go down to page three, paragraph four. Now our author muddles up what is blood ratified and what is not again. Because again, this is an area that Judaism will stay away from. Judaism isn't going to talk about blood ratification because they know that Christianity is all about blood, right? So they stay away with it, so much so that they don't even do the Torah. They're supposed to be doing a lot of blood, but they don't even do the Torah because the Torah says you've got to be sacrificing a bunch of animals today because it's Shabbat. And we'll get into the hypocrisy of this Torah observance later in the article. So now, he says this in page 3 on paragraph 4. Quote, Obeying his voice, his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his Torah are all parts of the covenant, and they are found in the book of the Torah, book of the law, Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. You're laughing because you know where I'm going. So trying to separate the Torah from the covenant makes no sense since Abraham's obedience to the Torah was an integral part of the covenant. But he just stated it. But now he's backtracking because he didn't see it, you see? Look at page 3, paragraph 5. He says thus, You cannot pluck the Torah instructions out of the covenant. He's right. You don't pluck covenant in Torah instructions out of the covenant because, of course, they're in the covenant. Why would you pluck them out of the covenant? They're in the covenant. But you must distinguish between what law is in the covenant and what laws are without of the covenant. What is lesser is out of the covenant and imposed to. What is greater is blood ratified and within the covenant. You have to distinguish between the book of the law and the book of the covenant to understand the Malkitzedic message. And there is the pressure point. The pressure point. He goes on to say this. 
quote, the book of the Torah and the book of the covenant are the same. This is evident from the incident when Hilkiah found the scroll in the temple. Now, this is what I call the Josiah effect. This is the Josiah effect, which we've dealt with extensively in this ministry in the past. But succinctly and briefly, if you found the book of the law, you'd find the book of the covenant too, wouldn't you? Why? How far away was the book of the law from the book of the covenant? How far? Like miles? No, it was right outside in a pocket. Because inside the covenant was the covenant. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And outside the Ark of the Covenant was the book of the law as a witness against you because you broke it. So if you found one, you would find the other. Archaeologically, this does not prove a synonymous relationship whatsoever. It proves that Yahweh's word is true and that every man is a liar. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 26. This isn't a proof text. This is the Josiah effect of reading your own ideas into the text without really extracting the information from the text. Deuteronomy 31 verse 26 tells you that the book of the law was placed outside the Ark of the Covenant as a witness against you for breaking the covenant. This is profound. So this is not something that we need to spend too much time on. It's just the Josiah effect and we've dealt with this so many times. What Josiah did, of course, was he did many, many reforms. Did he not? Josiah did many, many reforms, and this is what the author is talking about. But what Josiah did was not ratify the covenant. He did not ratify the covenant. This is not a covenant of promise. It does not connect back to Genesis 12 or 15. We do not meet one single book of the covenant requirement and all of Josiah's reforms, as good as they were, they were epic failures, were they not? They didn't even last two generations. Yahusha's work lasts forever. His Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant blood ratification ceremony when he was crucified did not fail, will not fail, cannot fail. It lasts forever. You cannot compare the work of Josiah to the work of Yahusha. May it never be so. Let's go down to page 3, paragraph 6, um, and we'll go to the top of page 4. This is what he says, okay? Quote, of course, that is a very Hebrew concept and practice. The Hebrew language often uses different words for the same thing. This sometimes poses a problem for those unfamiliar with this ancient language and culture. In the case of this new, it's not new, Malkitzedic doctrine, those who ascribe to it erroneously believe that since different words are being used, then there is a different book, a different scroll, 
concept, doctrine, or covenant being distinguished. This is simply not the case. So page four, if you look at it, it tries to construct a straw man again. Tries to construct a straw man of synonymous parallelism through highbrow Hebraic poetry. I don't think we really need to seriously consider this based upon two powerfully robust texts and you can be your own judge whether you use exegesis or am I using eisegesis? You be the judge. I'll go with exegesis and let the text say what it says. Exodus 24 verse 7 Sefer Brit Samach Pei Resh Bet Resh Yod Tav Deuteronomy 28 verse 61 Sefer Torah Samach Pei Resh Tav Vav Resh Hei how you can say that these have any similarity linguistically, textually, I don't understand. These are unconnected. These are disparate words. Not only in the Masoretic text of the synagogue of Satan, but in the Septuagint and in the New Testament. 3,400 years ago, 2,000 years ago, multiple source texts. We've got textual witness and textual witness to these sepharim, these books, if you will, not being one and the same. Both are Torah. That is true. That is the similitude. And that's where it stops. One is Malkizedek and its covenant. The other is added imposed a schoolmaster it was a law contained in ordinances Ephesians 2 verse 15 and we'll leave it at that you decide whether I'm using exegesis or eisegesis let the text speak for itself that's the purpose let's go to page 4 and paragraph 3 okay this is where our author says this we can specifically see this prose involving the law, Torah, and the covenant Brit in Psalm 78, verse 10. They did not keep the covenant Brit of Elohim. They refused to walk in his law, Torah. You see here the law, Torah, and the covenant Brit being used synonymously. You see, our author right here in this poem, page 4, paragraph 3, stumbles over the truth again. And he assumes a synonymous relationship, not comprehending that they did not keep the covenant means the book of the covenant. He assumes an, a, a synonymous relationship, even though the text actually that he just quoted spells it out for you. They did not keep the covenant means the book of the covenant. They broke it at the golden calf. Breach, and then the book of the law was imposed, and they didn't keep that either, which was the perfect, perfect purpose of the prophets. 
What was the perfect purpose of the prophets? To say, hey, repent. You need to come back under the book of the law until Messiah comes and brings the full redemption and he'll actually write the commands on your heart and you'll be able to do this stuff. But until then, you need to come back under the book of the law because otherwise you're dead. You're going into exile. So Yahweh, the prophets, more prophets and more prophets. And the burden was so heavy because they didn't have the Ruach that they couldn't even keep the book of the law. So Yahweh, in his mercy, invokes the Genesis 49.10 change clause of Torah. He says, it's always been there. But for me to invoke it, means some blood's going to be shed. And this time it's going to be my son's blood. It's going to come at a huge cost. And then there will be a change of law, a transference and a change of priesthood that you'll actually be able to do this because this will be a light and easy yoke. I have seen more burdensome families in the Messianic movement than I count, I can even believe to count. Women five steps behind their husband in all this Hebraic garb, heavy and their shoulders down, men lording themselves over their wives and children, just, just burdensome, burdensome, burdensome. I'm like, this is supposed to be fun. This is supposed to be inspiring. This is supposed to be liberty. Not liberty to paganism and lawlessness, heaven forbid. But the Torah is light and easy. If you're in Messiah's Malkitzedic priesthood, it's a joy because the Ruach HaKodesh is a present with us all in our families, not just when we're together, but when we're alone in private too. You see... This is something that saddens me because I spent 10 odd years amongst that. And it always vexed me. I'm like, well, I don't want to go back into the church and all the paganism and the half-truths. But surely this is, man, this is a heavy burden. Thank goodness for the Malkitzedic message and the lifting of the veil for us all, for us all. Let's continue on page four, paragraph five. He admits to a change in the status at the golden calf. That that change of status was the breaking of the covenant. He actually admits to it. Then he mistakenly believes Moses renewed the book of the covenant, which the Bible never records he does. And here it really does actually get dangerous. Because our author attributes the work of Messiah to Moses. He then catches himself in that. And then he switches it up saying, well, it points to a future pattern. A a pattern of Messiah and a change of priesthood. But then he keeps on going without realizing the profundity of the statement that he's just made. Let me read it to you. Quote, now it is clear that the status of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh changed after they whored at Sinai. Yes, he's getting it, right? He's saying there was a change in the Torah. He states it. This is the whole signpost analogy I'm using, okay? It's right there before you. Changed after they whored at Sinai, and this is why Moses broke the tablets of stone, That broken covenant was later renewed through Moses on freshly cut tablets of stone. 
This renewal at Sinai was a pattern for a future renewal that would occur through the Messiah and the renewal involved a change in the priesthood. I mean, this is double talk right here, isn't it? So much so that it's like, you're like, well, what? Oh, hang on a minute. Is this message for the Malkitsedic priesthood or against it? Because now I'm confused. He's actually arguing with himself right now in the text. You can see the conflicting struggle within our author as he contradicts his opening statements on page one and paragraph three where he stated this. He stated this all the way back on page one in paragraph three. But now on page four, paragraph five, he's totally struggling with it, contradicting and giving us some double talk. And this is a messianic movement. And this is why I came out of it, because I'm like, whoa, hang on a minute. Whoa, and I was in the midst of it. So for a while, I couldn't see the wood for the trees either. I was veiled. But I just kept on reading, studying, praying, taking counsel. My wife and I were like, well, you know, and we've always been able to just press in together. And I'll tell you one thing, praise Yahuwah. Whatever happens, we always come into one accord, don't we? My wife and I, always in one accord. She may get something first, and then I'll come along in one accord, or I may get something first, but there's always confirmation because we are Besar Echad, and the same with our children. Yahweh works in families like that when you're pressing in. It's amazing, it's amazing. Let's look. Lost my train of thought. Got so excited about my family there. Yes, here we go, here we go, here we go. Where are we? Page four, paragraph five. Yeah, he's actually arguing with himself right now because you can see this conflicting struggle. Okay, and he contradicts, this is where I was, thank you. Thank you. He contradicts his opening statements, page one, paragraph three, where he stated this, quote, the major problem that I see with this teaching is that it would only last until Messiah came. Well, you, now you just stated that in page four, paragraph five. <laughs> Do you see that? But that was a major problem for him four pages back. But now he's, he's saying that this is what happened. Not my words, his words. The major problem that I see with this teaching is that it would only last until Messiah came. Once Messiah came as the Malkitzedic priest, he allegedly freed and separated those in his priestly order from the book of the law, and now they are strictly priests of the book of the covenant. But now, four pages later, he's admitting three things that are a total contradiction to his opening statements on page one and, of course, paragraph three. He's admitting now a status change of law. Two, it was based upon breach of covenant. And three, a later event change of law and priesthood in Messiah, which is my point exactly. Do you see that? Are you following along with me and catching this? Because this is huge, a huge tell to what's going on here. And here's a side note. 
you cannot renew an already broken covenant. You must make a totally, utterly brand new one. And that's Paul's point in Galatians 3 verse 15. Though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereunto. Now it gets even better. You thought that was good? That was inspiring? It gets even better right here in page six, excuse me, page four, paragraph six. This is what he says. After the sin at Sinai, the Levites replaced the firstborn of Israel as priests to Yahuwah. So something changed in the Torah. Then he goes on and says this. They served in the order of Aaron, Yahushua, as the firstborn of Elohim, came to renew the covenant and restore the priesthood to the firstborn or first fruits of Elohim and the Lamb. Revelation 14.4. Boom! He got it! He just got it! He got it! He got the golden calf breach. He got the change of priesthood, which means that there must have been a sanctioned change of law and then a revision back to the restored Malkitzedic priesthood. Our author really is an undiscovered genius. He really is. But he doesn't know it yet. This is amazing. I mean, I was reading this in my armchair and I was almost spitting my tea out. I'm like, I have got to teach on this. I mean, we had some friends around our house, and they're like, oh, have you read the article by XYZ? I'm like, no, I haven't. Oh, yeah. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I have got to do a teaching on that. This is brilliant. This is going to help so many people. And that's what I hope. I mean, I'm having a little bit of a laugh, okay? Not at anyone's expense. I mean, I really don't mean to. Because we've all made mistakes. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of Yahweh. And we've all missed opportunities. But this is a great opportunity to help people get unstuck from that Judaic synagogue of Satan mindset that hinders the Holy Spirit in you really living the fullness of the Shabbat, the feasts and the festivals and all things Yahweh has for your faith, for your family, for your marriage and for those in your community around you. Let's go to page five, paragraph one. Quote, it is from this text that the followers of Yahusha understand that the Messiah is of a different priesthood, he says. A different priesthood? Well, that would mean surely a transference or change of law, which our author is denying, but he's actually writing about and admitting it, but doesn't even know. Hebrews 7.12, Genesis 49 verse 10. Locked in, in perfect unity and fulfillment. Now here's a phrase, I've said it so many times, but it's so succinct. It is not a change of Torah to enact the change in Torah that has always been in Torah. Think about that. It is not a change of Torah 
to enact the change in Torah that has always been in Torah. I'm not changing the Torah because Yahusha enacted the Genesis 49.10. He enacted it, thus he changed it, but it was always there. You're allowed to do that. You're not adding because it was already there and you're not taking away because it's already there. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's law division. The rightly dividing point, Second Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth, Psalm 119. Let's go to page 5 and paragraph 5. I love this. Stick with me. It's a long teaching, but keep on turning those pages. Hopefully you're on the computer or you've printed this article down. We've got it in the description below if you have missed that point. But page 5, paragraph 5, now we find at least our author disagrees, and this gives me great hope, with mainstream messianicism at this point. And he does not take issue with believers in Messiah being priests under the order of Melchizedek. He says this, he is a firstborn priest, and the firstfruits, firstborn of Messiah, will also be priests. But that does not change the covenant or the Torah or the promises made to Aaron for that matter. It actually does. But at least he's not as far in as deep as many in the synagogue of Satan and actually freely admits that believers in Yahushua can be priests under the order of Melchizedek. So that's good. That's a very good insight. Let's skip over to page 7. We're nearly concluding here. Page 7 and paragraph 2. I'm enjoying this anyway. I hope you are. <laughs> I mean, I really am. He stumbles all over the truth again in page 7, paragraph 2. John the Immerser prepares the way and the Levitical priesthood is limited in scope and it's limited in duration. He says this, quote, So a very special role was reserved for a Levite to prepare the way for the Malkizedic. The Malkizedic priesthood is the eternal priesthood. Well, Thank goodness we can agree on that. While the Levite priesthood or Aaronic priesthood is limited in scope and duration. Praise Yah for his insight there. Now we skip down on page 7 to paragraph 5 and we come across. I've got to sit down for this one. We come across... What always troubles me, it's the great Daniel deception. It's the synagogue of S.A. Tan snare. This is the Ezekiel Masoretic chapter chaos. From John Hagee to Hal Lindsey to Monty Judah, to Michael Rood, to Rico Cortez. They're all pushing this. Of course, it's this third temple abomination. Everybody's pushing it. And it is the Daniel deception. It's the synagogue of Satan, Max. He says this. This, of course, frames your whole religious worldview. Quote, during the seventh millennium, 
A temple will be built and functioning on earth while the new Jerusalem remains above in the heavens. It is not until the end of the Sabbath millennium that the new Jerusalem descends onto the renewed earth. So there remains a place for the promises to Aaron and Levi through that age, along with the eternal Melchizedek order. Synagogue of Satan is misreading Ezekiel because they're reading it from the Masoretic text snare of chapter and verse. We've already done a whole teaching series that explains that Ezekiel is a revelation of 13 scrolls and that there is not going to be a third millennial temple that Yahuwah dwells in here on earth. There's going to be a construct that Paul says is where the man of sin will enter in and all those will worship him as if he is Elohim. It's the Judaic synagogue of Satan's snare where everybody's going to be going up and doing animal sacrifices underneath an Aaronic priesthood. And Yahushua will have no part of that because he is outside of the gates on a different altar on which they that go into that abominable snare will have no right to eat because those ceremonial washings will never cleanse the sinner. Never. So again, we don't want to spend much time on the Daniel deception, but there's another YouTube video called The Daniel Deception where I break that down pretty clear. We don't want to follow John Hagee, Hal Lindsey and the like, and the Messianic movement has gone after this because this is, of course, propaganda from the Zionists and the synagogue of Satan. Now we go to page seven, paragraph six, we get the straw man again, and he quotes this. It appears that this new Malkitzedic teaching is just another deception to lead people into a condition of lawlessness without the Torah. And this is this is always puzzles me. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. I spent over a decade in the Messianic movement. What commandments are you keeping that we're not? We keep the feasts. We keep the Sabbath, we keep kosher, we keep the holiness code, we don't stone our kids, we don't build parapets on our houses, we don't do animal sacrifices required every Sabbath day that are laid out in the book of the law. Do you? Because we, under the Malkitzedic priesthood, have a reason for not doing these. But they that are in the book of the law do not have a reason for not doing these. And there's the problem. In the Malkitzedic priesthood, we have a legitimate mandate for change from Torah. It's from the Torah. Like I've said so many times today, Genesis 49.10. Exodus 32, Numbers 3.12, Numbers 8.15 and 17, Joshua 5.5, Hebrews 7.11 and 12. Evidences that change. It is undeniable. It's not a change to lawlessness, heaven forbid, but it's a change to covenant, a law of liberty. Liberty. Now, to deny a change, like our author, yet act 
act on a change that they have no legitimate Torah mandate for is hypocrisy. It truly is. And here the truth comes out. This article and those that adhere to this all-law, undivided doctrine, it's not Torah observance at all. At all. In reality, the synagogue of Satan is selective in which parts of the law they do obey. Did Yahweh become flesh and spill his blood simply to spare people the inconvenience of sacrificing animals? Hypocrisy and picking and choosing is why I left the church. Hypocrisy and picking and choosing is why I left the messianic movement. And reality and covenant blood ratification is why I embrace the Malkitzedic priesthood. Because there is no hypocrisy. It is unadulterated covenant reality. You do it all. If it's in the covenant, you do it all. You keep the Sabbath. You keep the dietary requirements. You keep the feasts and festivals. You live a holy, righteous life in a sick and twisted world. And you are empowered by the power of Malkitzedek Kohen Haggadah, who sits at the right hand of the Father, to live it and have a blessed life. Without bondage. Without a form of godliness, yet denying its power. The power is in the high priest. Not of Aaron but of Malkitzedek. In the Malkitzedek priesthood, we have a legitimate mandate for change. In the one law, undivided doctrine, you have no mandate for change. You have to do it all. And all means all, but you don't. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. It's not Torah observance at all. It's a form of godliness yet denying its power. In the end, it's no different from the traditional church. Don't Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 and Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 say that cursed is everyone which does not continue to do every single thing written in the book of the law. That's quite a burden. And if you adhere to the one law, undivided doctrine, then you are going to be cursed, feel a burden if you don't do it all, and you're not doing it all. Because it's inconvenient for you. Because you make excuses. There, well, there's no temple, and oh, well, we don't know. But you don't have that right. The Torah doesn't give you that right. If you're going to make the change, it has to be authorized by the high priest. It's got to be according to the scriptures I have just laid out. Not my authority, heaven forbid. I have none. It is the authority of the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. How is it in their selective view that grace exempts them from observing the parts of the law that they find inconvenient and impractical today? Well, they don't keep the laws of sacrifice. They don't keep the laws of nidah. But it doesn't exempt them from observing the parts of the law that they love. Long beards and seat seats and flowing garments. And I've said so many times before this. 
I really wonder how those who lay claim to being Torah observant can reconcile these obvious problems with consistency in obedience to the whole undivided law doctrine. It's so obvious to me. That's why I left. Packed my family up and said, we can't do this anymore. It's not right. I've got to teach the truth. And you know what? I've been lambasted. This ministry's been hammered. But we are being blessed. And it's worth it. Because more and more people are getting unstuck from the very things that our author is stuck on. There's signage all around. We are the generation. But sometimes, like myself and Moshe mountain biking last week, you just want to make it harder because you've got this predetermined synagogue of Satan or religious mindset on just what you should be doing. But it just ain't so. So, all that to say this. If you do go ahead and decide to perform sacrifices or to build a paraffin on your roof to be consistent, then what use is the tree of crucifixion to you? Have you not left the tree of Messiah, rejected the redemptive work of the blood that was shed there for you and the Lamb of Yahweh? Well, yes, you've left the tree if you're like that. You've rejected the redemptive work and blood of the Messiah. You've chosen the wrong altar, the wrong sacrifice, and the wrong high priest, which is what the synagogue of Satan is leading you to do. And herein lies the Daniel deception, the great deception. It's called, there's nothing new under the sun, Judaizing. Judaizers. And the hypocrisy of it all it comes into full view. And I'll close right now with my opening statement. Because this is just a modern paraphrase capturing the synagogue of Satan and the Malkitzedic polemic. Galatians 2.12 Those who are being vexed and fearful of the synagogue of Satan, they walk in hypocrisy. I see that they are not straightforward about the gospel. If they pretending to live like Jews, in reality they live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. Why do they compel others to live like Jews, knowing a man is not justified by the book of the law, but by faith? If they construct those things which have been torn down, they make themselves transgressors. You see, the Messiah, Yahushua, also warned us, knowing the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. You see, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess before the Malkitzedic throne on which our high priest does thus sit. And he will be surrounded by his Malkitzedic priestly remnant who will get to witness it all. You're going to get to witness it all when you see the smoke clear. 
And we've linked to the full article below. So read it in your own time. Follow along with me. And remember, remember this. The new covenant is so vastly superior. It's a better covenant built on better promises. With a perfect sacrifice and a perfect forever high priest. And I pray, I truly pray today that none settle for or strive to live under the book of the law, which leads to Judaism, a Levitical high priest, and animal sacrifices in the anti-Messiah's Noahide courts of injustice. And they're pushing it. They're pushing it. And the synagogue of Satan is the rocket thrust all behind it. Tie a string, really. Tie a string around the polemic. And one will end up in Judaism worshipping Satan and the other at the feet of our Savior under his right administration of law. One will lead to the synagogue of Satan. One to the Malkitzedic priesthood. You see, to walk in Torah, you need to walk in the Torah given to Abraham, which our author admits. And it's a beautiful thing. And Abraham, he's a man who never knew a Levite, and he never knew a Levitical priesthood or a Levitical temple. This article is truly inspiring to those of us in the Malkitzedic priesthood because there are others out there that are stating truth but stumbling over the truth and getting up and continuing to walk in their preset mindset. But in the other parts, there is people out there proclaiming the truth and these are the sticking points that have prevented people from coming in. So this article really is a, a great opportunity for us to examine and say, oh, I see, these are the familiar sticking points because this Malkitzedic anointing is spreading worldwide as people are being liberated, not to lawlessness and paganism, heaven forbid, but to Torah in its right administration, not under the administration of a bunch of hypocrisy and religious synagogue of Satan, but under the administration of the Malkitzedic Kohen Haggadah. Anyway, questions, comments, we may have a few online or any here. Then now we'll see if we can address those. But, uh, this was, this was a, a fun endeavor, if a little bit lengthy today. Okay. We have a question. It says, why are the commands located in Exodus 34, 10 through 28, literally called the Ten Commandments, alongside the commonly accepted ten located at Exodus 20, 1 through 17, which are never called such? Repeat that one more time. Okay. Why are the Ten Commands located in Exodus 34, 10 through 28? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah literally called the Ten Commandments, alongside the commonly accepted ten located at Exodus 21 through 17, which are never called such. So in, in um, Exodus, in Shemot, Exodus 20, you have the giving of the mitzvot. 
You have the giving of the Book of the Covenant with the proposal, acceptance, blood ratification, and covenant confirming meal, which includes, of course, all the texts of Exodus 20. That's all part of the Book of the Covenant. It's not limited to 10 words. It's the whole covenant, which includes that narrative and text. But here, after the breaking of the tablets, the sin of the golden calf, we have the book of the law. And the book of the law, here we can see, it says that, and he said, behold, I make a covenant. And we've got the new tablets. And then we have all of the rest of the narrative that goes on into Numbers with Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the question that I pose to you, because this is a sticking point. Here in this covenant that you see, is there a proposal? Is there an acceptance? Do you see any blood ratification and any covenant-confirming meal? So whatever this is, which it does include the re-giving of the Ten Commandments, is this connected to the Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant which was broken? Absolutely not. There is nothing that links it. It is the added law, which includes the Ten Commandments, yes. But this is what was imposed upon them because of the infraction. But this is a covenant, but this is not a Malkitzedic covenant. It has none of those qualifiers. This is a stumbling block for many, Exodus 34. I hope that answers that. Maybe not. I hope so. Lots of questions. Great. We love questions. All right. It says, in Exodus 20, it is written about offering animal sacrifice as a free will offering. Is that done away with, or can one offer spiritual animal sacrifice? Well, Exodus 20, you're correct. Exodus 20, verse 22, we get the law of the altar. There was, of course, the offering there. But the law of the altar back in Exodus 20 had to be done under the Malkitzedic high priest and the administration of the Malkitzedic, correct? Of course. It was thus then broken and then you had the added prescriptive laws of the Levites. But now with Yahushua's blood ratification, death penalty and resurrection, now are under his administration and the sacrifice and the altar, of course, is now reinstituted, not done away with. Who do we get our instructions on altars and sacrifices from? The administrator the high priest himself. And the book of Hebrews gives us all of the details of how we work now under Yahushua's administration. So the law of the altar, Exodus 20 verse 22, is brought forth under the administration of Yahushua and he says that those sacrifices are according to the writer of the book of Hebrews. And it ain't a mound of dirt and it ain't a bunch of animals. It's so much bigger than that. And if Yahushua ever stands before any of us and starts to tell us to slay animals, then we will do it. But until he does, I'm sticking with the last order given by the writer of the book of Hebrews. Anybody that's in the military, 
you will know that I'm telling you the truth. I went to an all-boys military boarding school, and they used to do insane things to us, like give us instruction, drop... I remember, I was like my son's age. can't believe my mom let me do, made me do this stuff. Put us on a bus, ship us out into the middle of nowhere in England, little boys with a map and compass. They would give us instruction, and they'd pick us up 50 miles later in a, a day or two later. I would always get lost. I mean, I would, like I did last weekend, my navigation, right? But one thing that we always learn, follow the last orders given to you regardless. Even if you get lost, even if you're days late, you will not get in trouble. Just follow the last instruction given to you by somebody in authority. If somebody else who's not in authority tells you to do, don't listen to them. Just follow the last order given to you by an authority position. I'm going to follow the writer of the book of Hebrews. Long-winded Matthew, sorry, question three. Can Matthew explain his view of Noahide laws? Noahide laws are an inception and snare of the synagogue of Satan. They are going to be thrust forward and forward and forward. It's going to bring you into the Daniel deception. The messianic movement are going to propagate it, propagate it, propagate it, and try and drag you all into it. You're going to be sheep led to the slaughter. It's from hell. One more. Actually, two more. Two more. Okay, if the Jews today do not accept Yahushua as Messiah... Do what they... Jews? <laughs> you mean the Ashkenazi? They who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of S.A.? They're not even Jews. They're not even descendants of Shem. You're talking about the African Americans that aren't Americans and they're not Africans. They're actually the Negro regal class of the house of Judah. Are we talking about the real Jews? You see, I've done a teaching on that. It just blows your mind, doesn't it? But the synagogue of Satan, they can't stand that because they want to keep the African-Americans thinking that they're black Baptists. So Sorry. The question was, Is do they worship the same Yahuwah as we do, considering... First no, God? they do not worship. They worship... <laughs> Yahushua answered... Sorry, darling. Okay. She has to put up with me interrupting her all the time. Yahushua answered that. They worship the devil. Your father is of the devil. You who deny the son, you don't have the father. No, they don't worship. It's a form of godliness, yet denying its power. It's luciferic. I am jacked up now, see? But in a good way. Sorry, honey, I didn't mean to cut you off. Finish, finish, finish. She's going to beat me with a microphone when we get home. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, it says... Oh, come on. <laughs> what do you believe, Matthew, are some of the Malkitsetic priesthood duties today? Well, that's an excellent question. Mikvah, ritual immersion, first off. Interceding for your brethren. Visiting the poor, the widows, and those afflicted. And doing those good works. But deliverance is a huge thing. We need more people to get into the deliverance because our war, it's not with this author. It's not with flesh and blood. It's with principalities. 
So a big part of the priesthood, a big part is the interceding and the spiritual discernment, the power of prayer, prophecy, and direction. But we cannot neglect the most righteous Kadosh code of all is visiting the sick and the widows, the orphans. But we must do this in solidarity by coming together instead of being all disconnected and isolated. And that's why we want people to come and join the feasts and festivals of Yahweh. Question up here. We need a microphone because we have our online audience that wants to get in on the questions too. Sorry, this isn't a question. Oh, okay. I'll sit down. I pushed back as being one who... Well, that's because you were a Baptist minister. No, I wasn't. What were you? Christian Missionary Alliance. All right. And I pushed back, but I kept saying, but I sense that this is a part of the Spirit. So I knew, but I kept pushing and pushing back. And I said, if the Spirit tells me that this is true, then I'll know. In the meantime, I'm going to keep pushing back because I'm not getting some answers. The Spirit, or what do you say, Hakadash, talked to me one day very clearly. There is a difference between the Book of the Law and the Book of the Covenant, and it was from the Word, which Hebrews says, the Word divides between. And the Word told me that, and everything else has changed. And therefore, I am now getting more questions answered on the, spe the specific details. But that's why I keep coming every time, and that's why I will obey the truth that I know. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. And even, even all my years in the Messianic movement, they're, they're, they had to admit there was a law division, but they didn't want to admit it was in the Torah. So the whole premise, it was a false premise, was, oh, all of those apparent law verses that are really hard, it's a law division between the written law and the oral law. Well, what a bunch of tosh. I believe that. But that's not. It's called out in Galatians 3.10. It's a law division between the book of the covenant and the book of the law, which, of course, the allegory between Sarah and Hagar is so succinct. So the premise was false. Yes, there's a law division, but it's between the written Torah in its entirety. Of course, we can't divide that because the synagogue of Satan has totally got that. You know, we've got a, they, they, I mean, they, they're following the same God as us. Yes, they're following a God, but it's a God. We follow Yahuwah Elohim. They're following Satan, the fallen God. And so their premise is flawed. They say, well, there's a distinction between the written law in its entirety and the oral. That's oral law. And that's the conflict that you see in the New Testament. No, it's not. The conflict is the Pharisees were still pushing the book of the law. And Paul said, no. If you do that in Messiah, you've got to do it all, otherwise you're cursed. Come into the Malkitzedek and keep the Torah, but it's the book of the covenant Torah. That's the true division. And when you get that, 
then everything falls into place and you are at liberty to righteousness, not at liberty to paganism, church, lawlessness. And that's the difference. So if we've set our hound to the plow, which I did many years ago, I'm not going to go back into lawlessness. But I've got to move forward and follow the master. So bless you. Shabbat shalom and Yahweh's blessings upon you all. Let's catch you next Shabbat. Praise his holy name. Amen.